Today, we're going to explore in depth the economics of happiness. The documentary is The Brainchild and the, the Strength of Character of a Very Inspiring Person. And that person is Helena Norberg Hodges. And she is educated in Sweden, in Germany, in Austria, in England, in the United States. She has uh, taken special studies at the University of London and at MIT. And she has lived for a long time in what is known as the Little Tibet in the Western Indian Himalayas. And there she was able to find ways of Im- embedding the culture to meet the modern world without sacrificing social and ecological values. How did they do this? For her efforts, she was awarded the Right Livelihood Award or the Alternative Nobel Prize. She is considered by Earth Journal among the top 10 major environmentalists in the world. She is also the author of the book, Ancient Futures. And in this film that you're about to see, she will shed as the co-director of a multi-award winning film, the failures and destructions wrought upon societies by corporate globalization. And in it, she outlines a new economics based upon localization to rebuild communities. So she both outlines the problems around the world, but more importantly, the solutions. Now, many of the people you will recognize who are in here, because we've had them on our radio program, or they've been in our documentaries, such as Vandana Shiva and Rob Hopkins, the founder of the Transition Culture Movement, or David Corton, or Bill McKibben, who we had on recently, or Richard Heimberg, the peak oil man who was recently on, or Rinpoche, the former prime minister of Tibet, who was on our uh, Conversations with Remarkable Mind series, and many others. So now we're going to go to Australia. There will be a technical difficulty simply because she's on Skype and she's in Australia. And I will allow the interview to run as long as it need be because I need to ask her about globalization. I need to look at the world today, the chaos in uh, in Ireland and Spain and Greece and what that forebodes for what's happening to us. The inertia of uh, the American working class, middle class, and upper classes, and the educated class, to deal with any of our issues honestly and forthrightly. And who is going to be helping us in a new direction, a new way? Now, let's go to Australia and say hello to Helena Norberg-Hodgetts. Thank you. Glad to be here. Helena, I'll give an overview. And after my overview, please take any part of it and take it uninterrupted as far as you choose to, all right? Okay. I don't do chit-chats or back and forth with guests as I prefer my guests to use this forum like a classroom on the air. So we are are all uh, actively anticipating that you're going to talk about issues and from a perspective that we have not yet had and therefore see the world through your eyes and understand through your perception what we need to know. Now for the larger view. For the past 40 years, through each administration and through both members of Congress and through the major media and through most of our important think tanks, such as the Council on Foreign Relations or the Trilateral Commission, and through all of our major 
institutions such as the World Trade Organization, the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, we have been led to believe that we must not only trust in the free market, but we must promote it. That it is only through privatization that we're able to properly and in a healthy way exploit the resources for the benefit of the people and countries throughout the world. That if they're down on their luck, if there's been hardship, we'll put in dams or roads, or we'll help them extract their oil or gas or water. We'll help feed their people by showing them proper monoculture. We'll bring in the benefit of pesticides, herbicides, fungicides. We'll be able to help them overcome starvation with genetically engineered seeds from Monsanto and DuPont. And backing this up will be a massive campaign, one that is almost so pervasive that virtually no one in the United States is immune to it. In fact, we don't even question uh, things such as the corn that we eat or the meat that we eat uh, or the chicken or the fish, where it comes from, what environment was it raised in, do we need to have this in our diet? None of these questions ever come up. The only question is, how big a portion am I getting? I want it supersized. I want it deep fried. I don't care about these trans fats. I want everything when I want it, and I want it now. I really don't have to spend time thinking the consequences of any action that I take, my government takes, or those people that I trust, the Bill O'Reilly's on Fox. They couldn't be bad and they couldn't be wrong or they wouldn't be that important and pay that much money. Unfortunately, this is the prevailing view that is common in the United States. Whether you're on the left or right is really irrelevant. Now, take that idea that we can't look back because there's nothing to learn from our colonizing of different countries or England or France or Germany or Denmark doing the same throughout Africa and Asia and the Caribbean. What we've done to these people. These are not times where lessons from history are important to us. We are living absolutely in instantaneous communication and that's all we care about. Now that's that is the classroom that we enter if you're an average American and asked to take a look at the consequences of globalization. So from your perspective, uninterrupted, deconstruct where we are and show us the consequences of not caring about the imprint, the footprint that we have on the world and the people who have been here before us and are interfacing with them. Well, I think... Uh, first of all, I'd like to say I, I am particularly trying to reach people who do care. And I think even there that the view of history, the view, as you said, of, of colonialism, the view of progress has been so pervasive that even people who desperately care and who do want to make a better world and who are often working hard as activists from my point of view, are not looking deeply and broadly enough to see where we could intervene and where we've gone wrong. So from that big picture, I'm so grateful, first of all, that you're giving me that opportunity because that's what I think we need is the big picture. And from that big picture point of view, I would say, first of all, I think we really need to go back to re-examine what we think of as the beginning of progress. And 
So what the picture that's been painted for us is that in Dickensian London, in the 1700s and the 1600s, there was hunger, there was illness, there was crime, it was filthy, polluted, and along came economic development and progress. We brought in the medicine, we brought in the infrastructure, and everyone started to prosper. Now, what I have seen in the so-called third world is very similar to what probably happened in the in Dickensian London, in the England of the 16 and 1700s. Because what I've been witnessing for the last 40 years in the so-called third world is people driven off the land into crowded slums where, yes, disease flourishes, poverty is rampant, crime increases, community has broken down. But this is what we have to examine is why and how is this happening? And if we go back to England, we'll see that there were the so-called enclosures. We'll see that there was a wealthy elite that actually benefited from pushing people off the land. They explicitly talked about the need to create the cheap labor for the factories that were being built using the cheap labor uh, from the countryside in England and the cheap resources that had been robbed from places like India and Africa. So in the third world, going back to the 1600s and, and even a little earlier, what we saw was genocide, slavery, and force pushing people away from producing a range of things for themselves in, in communities and small towns where they had a social fabric, they had community, they had intergenerational contact, they had local knowledge systems that were passing on information generation after generation about their specific climate, their specific plants, and they developed methods of production, of health care, and of, of also of political structures that generally worked quite well, certainly a lot better than what we've been led to believe. In many cases, they worked splendidly well, as in the cultures that I've known really intimately, like the culture in Little Tibet, the culture in Bhutan. There I've had personal experience of how incredibly well it worked, not perfect by any means, if those people would be allowed to truly develop, to learn from the rest of the world, and to improve and, and better themselves, you might have real progress. But if we go back now to look at what actually happened with the genocide and the slavery, people, as I say, the important structural thing to understand is that Going back 500 years, an elite has destroyed the ability for people around the world to produce a range of things for their own needs first, for their food, their clothing, their shelter, a range of skills and a range of products that could provide for them, and then to trade where they had excess. Now, this 
this to me is the key structural thing we have to look at to understand globalization, to understand how in the modern era, you have people on one side of the world who are able to work for a dollar a day. And on the other side of the world, you have people who are earning $100 a day. Now, that is a perfect setup for big global corporations who can produce where labor is cheaper and sell where people are earning more money. This is not a natural state of affairs. It's come out of specific political and economic changes. And these changes were growing, you know, step by step all the way back, you know, from the 1500s, 1600s. In the 1700s, it was a more dramatic shift towards a more industrial production system. And that started, you know, as you were saying, to promote monoculture. So these people who had previously been producing a range of things for themselves were now producing cotton for England or whole countries came to be known as tin countries, tea regions, banana regions for the global market. So this global market is not a natural phenomenon. It didn't come about through some kind of natural evolution. It came about through force and slavery. As we, you know, as we think about that, it's not a question of therefore thinking that all Westerners are evil and, and nasty, or even that all elites are necessarily so conscious of what they're doing. I think it's really important that we, instead of trying to have a sort of politics of identity, that we really look at the structures and have clarity about what happened and what absolutely must change if, we, if we're going to survive. So, you know, the, the, what I then have witnessed in, in the third world is that this shift away from a range of products for your own needs is a destruction of local economic fabrics, and it creates a dependence on imports from further and further away. In the modern era, you know, after the Second World War, this system became much more insidious because it was no longer a question of slavery and force. We, in fact, were led to believe that these countries were now free and independent. But in actual fact, what had been set in place was an economic model, which often was carried through with local elites. And it continued with this system of continually emptying and destroying local economies for export. And now the new force was debt and the power of the big multinationals and banks to, to impose that economic model. And so what happened after the Second World War with the so-called Bretton Woods institutions, the World Bank and the IMF were set up, but also so was the GATT, which is the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade. That general agreement sounded like something very benign. Many of the political leaders and even bankers and corporate heads by this time were able to tell themselves that this was for the good of mankind. And there may be people there who are blindly greedy and, and uh, you know, pretty unpleasant people for sure. But I know for a fact that many of the people who have participated in this process, who have promoted it by the time of the Second World War, were blindly convinced that continuing in this direction 
was the only path to prosperity, as you were saying. And that now these centralized institutions, with the help of the World Bank and the IMF, and this continual process of trade deregulation, that's what the GATT was about. Now, what does that mean, trade deregulation? What it means is that giant multinationals and banks are getting fewer regulations in terms of moving in and out of national economies worldwide. So whether it was my native country of Sweden or whether it was the Congo or, or America, what the process of trade treaties and trade deregulation led to was a massive increase in the power of mobile multinational banks and corporations. Now that is for me the most important issue for us to look at today, to understand how it can be that whole countries are now told, you can't afford to look after your own people. You've got to pay back the banks, your debt. You, you know, credit agencies telling countries off, countries bailing out the banks so that they can turn around and give million dollar bonuses. Where did this insanity come from? It's come from that process of global deregulation. Along the way, the personhood of banks, the need for finance reform and is for sure necessary. But I think if we don't see clearly that it is the globalization of the economy that has given the banks and corporations so much power that they're able to blackmail governments saying, if you don't give us more freedom and if you don't pay us back that debt, we'll go elsewhere and you will be left in the dark, you'll be left behind. Even presidents like Obama and, and presidents and, and prime ministers of virtually every country are running scared, trying to keep up with this rat race in the global economy. And that means continuing to roll out the red carpet in the form of an ever more globalized infrastructure for these globalized institutions. Now, I'm sure that's too much of a monologue already, isn't it, Gary? I better stop. Not at all. That's, we appreciate an, uh, a comprehensive <laughs> insight, and we're learning about your perspective, how you see the world. Now, I'm going to make it something more um, immediate and, for many people, a greater concern. I'm going to link two ideas together here. I spoke with this audience over two years ago when Greece was considered the worst off of all the 27 European nations in the Eurozone and uh, one of the 17 year using the Euro as a currency. Yes, Greece had made a lot of mistakes. They had a very corrupt um, bureaucracy. The wealthy paid little or no income taxes. Those in power had massive nepotism. Much of the unions were indifferent and corrupt. And there was not a real sense of, of care. As long as people got what they got, there wasn't a whole lot of issue raised. And as a result, they brought in Goldman Sachs, who lied and covered up about how deeply in debt they were. They were buying submarines. Why in the world would a country like Greece need a submarine? They didn't. But you can imagine the kickbacks from the companies making the submarines and the contractors facilitating the deal. So in any case, now they end up with hundreds of billions of dollars in debt. In fact, about 
For every dollar of income, they had $1.79 in debt. And by the way, that's gone up from now. So in comes Wall Street and and the International Monetary Fund, the European Center Bank, say, all right, we're going to help you out. But you've got to go through austerity. Now, what that meant in real language was your pensions we're going to take 20% of. We're going to drop the bottom out of the minimum wage. So whatever a person uh, can be paid, whoever's willing to do the work at that low pay will get the work. Uh, we're going to take away a lot of the things that you don't pay for. You don't pay for water? Well, now you will. We're going to privatize everything. The highway you drive down now that you don't have to pay a toll on? You will. Oh, and you know those islands that we have? We're going to sell those off. In fact, we're going to sell just about everything off. Yeah. And, and I said at the time, I said, we won't be concerned about that because we can't see the pain they're going through because we don't show our own pain. I said, we have far more people who are poorer, more hungry children than any country in Europe. Yet you won't exactly. see the 12, 12 million hungry American children. 12 million. Put another way, we have more American children going to bed hungry each day than New York has a population, New York City. And I said, you won't see the 9.5 million homes that were foreclosed on with four people per home or over 40 million Americans who are homeless but living with in-laws, couch surfing. You won't see the working poor working two jobs a day for minimum wage. You won't see 350,000 people with PhDs and advanced degrees on food stamps or working in a car wash, as I just experienced the other day, uh, drying cars with the towels when you come out of the car wash. And you're, th- you're thinking, how is this possible? Someone is an adjunct professor of history at a university, and they're drying uh, uh, cars with towels, as, you've, as we've all uh, seen this happen. So if we're not able to see our own suffering, if we're not able to see a, a 900,000 homeless vets, if we're not able to acknowledge, uh, if we're not able to even recognize how many students are in a debt peonage system, and yeah. 50% of all college graduates uh, are now living at home and are unemployed. And uh, the debt is accumulating, and they can't get out of it. And now we have 26 states with debtors' prisons, something from the 1700s. Yeah. So, so then why in the world would we care about what's going on in Greece? And I said it this. I said, A, first you'll have in every country in Europe, you'll have corrupt politicians who are insiders, uh, who are corporatists. They will get in control. They will approve all these austerity measures. I said, yeah. so initially the world will say, well, that's good. They're all going to tighten their belt and suck it up, and, and that's good because the banks have got to get back their money. But no one in the American media, mainstream media, was saying, what role did these instant banks play in causing these problems? Why, exactly. should, they get, why should they get this money back? And yeah. how is the likelihood that these people in these countries are going to allow themselves to go into such a, a, a lower position economically where many of them won't be able to survive as they have? And they're not going to tolerate this. And I said the unions will fight, then the youth will fight, then they'll vote these people out of office, and then they'll decline the debt, which will cause a cascading effect. It'll start with Greece, from there it'll go to Spain, and from there it'll go to um, uh, Ireland, and there it'll come back to Portugal, and then finally Italy, and the whole Eurozone will implode at that point, and the Euro will no longer have value. And I said, and then it's going to come to America. And I said, our working class won't fight. Our, our 
professional class of engineers, architects, uh, professors, lawyers, doctors, they never protest. Uh, the well, upper middle class are in their gated communities by the tens of millions, and, and they only care about their golf, their tennis, and what's on television. Um, and the wealthy never protest. The super wealthy no, never protest. And the poor never protest. So all that's going to leave is the poor working class who are armed and dangerous. I said that's where the, the pushback is going to come in the next 24 to 36 months in the United States. Now, exactly what I said is happening is happening. Now, that with an extended comment that I just gave you, please. Tell us about looking at what's happening in Europe, in yeah. the Middle East, in the United States, and give us the lessons of history and give us the lessons of what happens when we haven't learned a lesson from history, we're not learning any lessons today, what is the likely outcome? And for those who choose to get off the grid, choose to no longer be under the thumb of the International Monetary Fund or any of the Brenton Wood group, uh, groups and want to get back to nature, become self-sufficient, do homesteading, create small communities, what is their likely outcome? The form is yours. Thanks. Well, first of all, I do also want to stress that, you know, you talked about how in Greece the leaders were corrupt. And I've witnessed very, very closely that, yes, in traditional structures there may have been some corruption, but when the economy was more localized and people were more in control of their own production and consumption, their political leaders had to respond much more to their own people. As the economy was more and more in the hands of multinational corporations, what happens structurally is that those who are able to manipulate and deal with the big boys on the outside, just as you were saying, who are willing to buy those weapons, who are willing to build those big dams, even when they're not necessary, they become the new political elite. So it's important to realize that even before in Greece, the problem was based on more, the more and more global, globalized economy increasing corruption worldwide as political leaders end up playing with the big boys in the global arena and not responding either to the needs or to the votes and the demands of their own people. So I think this is a very, very important thing for us to recognize that that's been going on globally and it's been building up for a long time. So once we regain power at the local level, we then can also start regaining more real political control and more real democracy. In the meanwhile, I was part of campaigns in Scandinavia, starting already in the late 70s and in the 80s, where all four Scandinavian countries, Norway, Sweden, Finland, and Denmark, wanted to stay out of the EU. At that time, for a very short while, we were able to have a little bit of an intelligent discussion in the media where we talked about the environmental consequences, we talked about the consequences to democracy. If we were now suddenly going to have to be going to Brussels to have our voices be heard, we talked about how this was all about favoring the big banks and corporations. They structurally cannot deal with diversity. This is another really, really important point. Because it's, even, even if they were the most benign and benevolent people sitting in those giant corporations, they have to standardize, and that means monoculture, biologically and in terms of human culture. So as a giant bank or corporation, you don't want to deal with all those languages and all those 
those different currencies you want to standardize. And that goes against life. Life is diverse, whether it's the plants we grow, whether it's us as unique individuals, this centralization of power and this centralized economic control is anti-life. So I often say, you know, I'm actually in favor of pro-life economy, one that respects diversity and that will decentralize the economic power and activity. And decentralizing doesn't mean down to the tiniest village. Our options are not to only operate at the most local village level. Local is a relative term, but it's a question of absolutely putting an end to multinational banks and corporations having the right to blackmail governments. We need to de-link from the global market and we could do so as a political strategy. You know, I would like to see a movement where people articulate clearly the problem of this globalized economy, go behind the politics, because I just also want to come back to Scandinavia. I mean, what we've seen in Scandinavia is that in these last 30 years, whether socialist or more right-wing, every government Every party has been moving in the direction of globalizing and therefore greater corruption, ever more disregard of the public, disregard, disregarding their vote, disregarding their, their voices and their needs. And that's going on systematically even in Scandinavia today. Not nearly as badly as in America yet. And in Australia, where there's also been a fairly good welfare net, Systematically, again, it's being undermined. The privatization that you're talking about is happening worldwide, and it's just at different levels. So if we have clarity about what is the cause of our problem, and we shift away from this narrow left-right trajectory to look more globally at the global economy and realize that we need to be supporting decentralization or localization, the, the policy strategy we should be encouraging, the vision I think we should be encouraging, would be that a group of nations link together to collaborate together to take on the giant multinationals and banks. Unfortunately, the U.S. government has been one of the biggest bullies for the corporations. For years I've been saying, just as you were saying, you know, Bush's policies were not about helping the American people. He's been helping to create billionaires in China and Greece and Mexico. It's, his policies were to create greater wealth for the global players, disregarding his own people. And as I say, now all, all governments virtually and political parties from left to right have been following the same pattern. I think partly because of blindness. So I don't, I think... I do feel that there is hope. I do feel that there are so many people who blindly have been adhering to these policies. There are so many people in the media who are blindly going along with what is, in effect, propaganda for a corporate view of the world. And if we can start, thank goodness for your radio show, thank goodness there are cracks in that, to start getting a different analysis, because I think that's where it begins. But of course, we don't have a lot of time. So I think the analysis should also come with a strategy. What I'm recommending is the vision that a group of nations need to get together. and that we need, So we need to be talking about forcing anyone who claims to be our political representative 
back around the same negotiating tables where they signed away our rights, they signed onto an agenda which was welfare for corporations and nothing for people. Uh, Jim Hightower has just been here in Australia where I am, so I was just had dinner with him last night. You know, one of his lines, which I loved, is that, you know, the top dogs think of us as fire hydrants. In other words, you know, the top dogs are really completely disregarding the people and their needs. And and, and so anyway, we, we now then need to have a policy strategy which would mean uh, completely renegotiating the treaties, the trade and finance treaties to start massive regulation globally to decrease the power of these mobile banks and corporations. Simultaneously, we need to demand a policy shift to deregulate local business and banking. The smaller banks that could be responding to local needs, that could be more responsible, are hampered by overregulation. This is a very, very important point, and it's one that hopefully could reach through to the grassroots so that there, you know, many people are so fed up with big government and all the bureaucracy, they don't realize that it's there because of the big players, and it's destroying the small ones which is why many big corporations are lobbying in Washington or in other capitals to increase regulation locally and nationally while lobbying for deregulation globally so they can move in and out. And you see, that's where even finance reform in the U.S. wouldn't help if we are not going to be protecting our national economies from these global players. And so that's why the key is that we've got to have that protection from these giant entities, banks and corporations that we should see as an interlinked empire. We need to draw a map of the world with this interlinked empire of banks and corporations and show how over the last 40 years it's grown bigger and bigger and bigger and that that's what's ruling the world. How do we break that up? That's the big question. We need to deregulate locally and we also need to shift subsidies we wrote a report in my organization, by the way, is called ISAC, and we wrote a report called Small is Beautiful, Big is Subsidized. And literally for 35 years now, we've been warning about this global deregulation and the local overregulation, subsidies for the global players and no money for the local players. I hope that people will also look at our film, The Economics of Happiness, which lays out these issues in an overview. And uh, we have a website, theeconomicsofhappiness.org, uh, theeconomicsofhappiness.org, where we, in a, a film just over an hour, we lay out this big picture analysis. Um, and so finally, what people can do right now anybody who's listening is first of all go to the to our website and to really try actively to inform themselves we have lots of links and lots of materials so you can inform yourself better of this bigger picture and then make it a commitment to reach out and educate others commit to sending information out to at least 10 of your friends or colleagues because i believe that Education as activism is the most important issue right now so that in within a year or so we could have a really powerful movement where the middle classes will demand change 
And we can also, the other thing that we recommend right now is that you link up locally with a group of people. It could be, doesn't have to be immediate neighbors, but people within your reach who can form a support nucleus for you and your family. And often what these groups do is to educate themselves jointly, and then they start taking action. And what we have promoted for we are over 30 years is to particularly focus on building up a local food movement. It's not just about shopping locally or buying organic. It's about creating a movement of linking up with farmers in the region. They may be 100 miles away. They may be 50 miles away. They may be closer, but... Start rebuilding a local or regional food economy. Support those organizations that have already initiated it. It is an absolutely vital lifeboat. It is something that is absolutely necessary in the long run. And in the short run, it could make a huge difference. Um, and thank goodness that local food movement is growing despite the fact that it's had no support from government, no support from the media, no money. It's been sweat equity from the grassroots. And in my organization, we, we published the, the earliest books on this, uh, one called Local Harvest. We have another book called Bringing the Food Economy Home. And we're thrilled to see the benefits of the local food economies, the farmers markets, the edible schoolyards, the permaculture gardens are growing. But it's not just about urban agriculture. It's about reaching out to farmers, absolutely vital. Also, if I could just add, there is a very exciting movement towards local business alliances where small independent local businesses are linking up with consumers and creating networks that are even supporting each other nationally. This is vitally important to support the smaller independent businesses. And the third thing is a shift in banking. It can be difficult to create, but you can, you can certainly start by at least putting some of your money into a local credit union. And as I was saying before, we need to change the regulations my colleague, Michael Schumann, has just come up with a new book called Local Dollars and Cents. And there is a, a path being forged towards strengthening local economies worldwide. And that we call the economics of happiness. I appreciate these insights. As we see the poverty increasing in America, what we're also seeing is another poverty, a tremendous poverty that not only the middle classes, but even the upper classes are suffering from. This economic system, the same globalized economic system that, by the way, is also responsible, primarily responsible for global warming, as we're importing and exporting identical products across the world. This system is robbing us of time, the time we need to look after our soul, our health, our well-being, the time we need to care for our children, for our parents, for the elderly, the time a doctor needs to look after a patient, the time a teacher needs to look after a student. We are being forced to run faster and faster to follow the machine 
which this globalized system promotes because it suits the need of the debt creation and the wealth creation of the banks and corporations. It really does work that way. And we could liberate ourselves into a society where we would have more time. I have witnessed firsthand how more traditional societies where there was ample time Time did not have a value on it. It was so ample. I saw how those people were made to run in a very short time because of the destruction of the local economy and the introduction of a dependence on global corporations. I saw how that also was linked to a breakdown of community, to a sense of connection to other people around you. In America, Already 25 years ago or something, you know, the average child grew up moving about seven times, just as they were growing up to, into becoming teenagers, I think. Now, that mobility is an excessive mobility that is born of the mobility in a rape-and-run economy. There are many cultures... I mean, I even experienced many businesses in places like Italy, not just in Tibet, where a factory, a furniture factory, a clothing factory, a shoe factory, a, a food production company had been operating generation after generation without having to move and become more global and grow year by year. They could stay the same size and still survive and still provide all the services and products that people needed. So this stability is essential for children as they grow up to form identities through relationships with living people instead of being basing their identity on, on media stereotypes and role models. In the cultures where those media, advertising and media did not exist, illnesses like anorexia, bulimia, and, and many other illnesses associated with low self-esteem did not exist. They did not exist. And, and this is so important for us to understand that our mental health and well-being comes from deeper connectedness to other people and to the rest of life, to the earth under our feet, to the animals, to the plants, children who are deprived of that nature contact. You may have heard of the book Nature Deficit Disorder. It's been widely recognized now not only that that deficit leads to serious emotional problems, but it also, of course, leads to health problems because the, the most important recipes for our health have to do with healthy, fresh food and water, uh, exercise, and love and community. So I hope that people will, will think about this. It's, it's maybe uh, you know, hard to believe all of this so suddenly, but again, I think my book, Ancient Futures, where I describe vividly the changes in this ancient Tibetan culture, hopefully will make people see, clearly see, not only that we have this huge problem, but much more importantly, that it would be far easier to fix than we believe far easier because the root problem is not overpopulation. The root problem is not innate human greed. 
the root problem is not some kind of evolutionary progress towards ever larger, ever faster, ever more competitive, and, and uh, an ever more ruthless world. No, structurally we could change things. Overpopulation is, is a problem vis-a-vis -vis natural resources, but if we shift our economic activity the way we're talking about, we could be employing people to heal the natural world, employing people to be producing in ways that are actually more productive. Uh, so there is a path, and it is to do with regaining that community fabric and connection to nature that we are all longing for. And this is why I believe it's so important that we make that link all the way from our inner personal happiness and well-being to the global economic system out there and that we understand the relationship. I, I appreciate those insights. I'm sure people in the audience do as well.